it is honestly, again, a privilege to be able to invest into your lives this morning yet again. Um, last night was a true um, sweet time of worship and fellowship in the presence of God. Nick, thank you for your ministry and leading the musicians. Uh, again, Julian, thank you for leading us in the call to worship. I did, I, if I said it last night, I want to say it again because I still feel like I am experiencing the overflow this morning of the way we encountered the Lord's presence last night. Um, it was hard to preach after the top 10 list that Josh gave last night introducing me, um, but it, it, it's really a joy to be with you. You know what's interesting about the body of Christ? I mean, like 98% of you I've never met before until this weekend. And then here we are laughing, enjoying life, eating meals, singing to our God, coming before him in prayer, receiving from his word, and it's like we've been doing this forever. And what's amazing is we're going to get to do this forever because of Jesus. Um, we're brothers. We're family. God is our father. Christ is our elder brother. He's created this. Even the fact there's two, you wouldn't even know from just so you know from like a, from someone who's been invited in to come and be with you this weekend, you wouldn't even know that two churches are here. Um, this is the family of God created through the life, death, and resurrection of our Savior, Jesus Christ. This is sweet. It's a foretaste of what's to come, my brothers. There'll be women there too, by the way. Um, so, and, 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 and that will make it better, no offense. It will definitely smell better in the new heavens and new earth because there'll be women there, um, but it, it, it'll be more beautiful too, trust me. Um, um, here, here's what I wanted to do to start us off this morning. If you weren't here last night, I, I preached last night. I delivered a sermon last night. I won't be delivering a sermon this morning. I'm going to be doing some teaching, kind of like a seminar, in two parts, one this morning, one later on this evening. And because here's what I want to do, is I want to take, I mean, I, I hope God addressed our hearts last night. I hope we were provoked by God's spirit through the scriptures last night to, to want to go after God the way Psalm 63 calls us. Um, it's a call to worship that begins with a call to go deep into God's presence because he's the only one who can truly satisfy our souls. I, th I hope you sense, not because of the preaching, but because of the spirit in the scripture, just drawing your hearts to want to be near God. Did you, did you sense that last night? Um, and so what I want to do this morning is I, I want to help us gain um, what I would just call a, a biblical theological understanding of the scripture's full teaching from like a, a macro 30,000 foot overview um, understanding of how the Bible in all of the major categories of the redemptive storyline has within it this thread of God's passion to be with his people. God's longing to experience the nearness of his people, which then stirs us to long for the nearness of God. And so I, I want to kind of do you know, a biblical theology, um, teach on a biblical theology of God's passion for intimacy with his people, which then in turn fuels God's people's passion for intimacy with God. Right? So I want to do that. But before we do that, um, I'd like us um, to pray Psalm 63, out loud together. Um, so could you take your Bible and go to Psalm 63, was our text from last night. Um, 
I'm officially commissioning Nick to uh, write a song on the jackals <laughs> will devour you. Okay. Sorry, I'm already working. On yes, yes. Um, but we actually are, we're not going to pray out loud the entire song. We're going to pray out loud verses one through verse five, and we will end at the word satisfied. My soul will be satisfied. So my brothers, let us pray the word of God. Oh God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you as in a dry and weary land where there is no water. So I have looked upon you in the sanctuary, beholding your power and glory. Because your steadfast love is better than life, my lips will praise you. So I will bless you as long as I live. In your name I will lift up my hands. My soul will be satisfied. Oh, some of you weren't listening. Let's say that again. My soul will be satisfied. My soul will be satisfied. May God add his blessing to the reading and praying of his word by the empowering presence of the Holy Spirit. Amen. I was... uh, it was the summer of 1987. Anybody not born? Anyone born after 1987? Okay. <laughs> 1987 was an amazing summer. It was the summer that U2 released the best album ever, Joshua Tree. Um, it was the summer um, that my infatuation with Sasquatch began because Harry and the Hendersons was released. <laughs> ever since that ridiculous film was produced... I long to be the family that found Sasquatch. Um, in fact, my family's getting ready to go on a road trip. We're doing a road trip vacation. It's like a, a once-in-a-family lifetime vacation that we've planned for a long time. All of our kids are teenagers now, so we're really looking forward to this. We're road tripping from Philadelphia to the Grand Canyon to Yellowstone. And we are going to be looking for Bigfoot. Um, <laughs> Um, and I just hope that when we get him in the Jeep, he like puts a, a, like a dent in the top of the Jeep like he did in the Henderson's station wagon. Um, it was also the summer um, that the Philadelphia Water Department decided to take out all the old water pipes on our street and replace them with new pipes. But I don't know how you know, government departments work here in Toronto, but when government um, uh, Agencies are doing work. It just takes a long time. Um, and so I think they get paid by the second. So they're just like milking every second. Um, if you work for the government, that's all right. I'm not talking about you. I'm talking about U.S., okay? Um, and so that summer, our entire street was ripped up. And while the pipe, while we were waiting for the new pipes to be put in, um, there was just this huge trench that went down our street and then opened up into this really big wide trench where they're going to put in this, this, this bigger connecting pipe. Well, all summer long this is happening. All summer long it rains. And so by the, end, by the end of the summer, that wide opening was like a giant mud pit. And so we were down there hanging out by the big opening one summer morning and my brother Ryan and my buddy Mikey gave me a dare. My brother, brother Ryan said, hey, I dare you to dive headfirst into that mud pit. <laughs> Don't worry, I'm not an idiot. I said, I'll do a cannonball. <laughs> so I ran back. I got myself a good 20-foot head start, and I just, you know, I sunk down to that mud pit like 
waist high. Everyone's laughing, I'm laughing, until I try to get out. I, have you ever been stuck before? Man, I was absolutely stuck. I mean, thankfully it wasn't quicksand, I wasn't sinking, but I could not move. My brother Ryan, who's like eight at the time, my brother, my friend Mike, who's like nine at the time, they grabbed my arms, they're trying to pull me out. No dice, okay? I'm trying to get myself out. I cannot get out. They finally run to a corner diner. They get two construction workers. They come out and they pull me out. Um, It's a horrible feeling to be stuck. It's a horrible feeling to be stuck and feel like there's no way to get yourself out. And I think very many times in our Christian experience, we feel stuck. We feel like we've been in this rut in a particular area of our Christian experience and we've just kind of come to the conclusion, you know, there's just no way anything's ever going to change in this area of my life and I'm just, I'm just here in this place, stuck in this position and I'm just going to have to deal with it and wait for glory. And I think many times that is the way we would, we, we would describe our experience with intimacy with God. Or to use other terminology that might be familiar with, our our devotional life. You've tried to have a meaningful, consistent pursuit of God's presence through the word and prayer and private worship. You've you've longed for, you know people who have it and you've you've watched them, you've heard sermons on it, but, but your personal pursuit of God Your intimacy with God, your devotional life, that's just not been the case for you. You feel stuck. A faithful and fruitful devotional life has not been your experience as a follower of Jesus. Maybe you've just given up. You're tired of feeling the shame and the frustration of trying and never quite getting there consistently. Um, Trying to cultivate a meaningful devotional life, trying to cultivate a meaningful, consistent time of intimacy with God is a humbling experience, isn't it? The quotable Scottish pastor, Robert Murray McShane, once said, you wish to humble a man? Ask him about his prayer life. Ask him about his prayer life. The same could be said of of one's devotional life as a whole. You wish to humble a Christian? Ask him, ask her about their devotional life. And when I say devotional life, I'm talking about pursuing intimacy with God. The discipline of pursuing intimacy with God is a humbling thing. Why? Because intimacy with God is an amazing topic to read about. It's an amazing topic to preach about. It's an amazing topic to sing about. But our devotional life, my intimacy with God, let's be honest, it's a humbling topic to discuss. I I think it's pretty safe to say that there's probably not a single man in this room who is satisfied with the present condition of your devotional life, whether in quantity or in quality, or am I the only one? No. I mean, how many times have we started the year with, a, a, with determined to read through the Bible in a year, and then we get to Leviticus and forget it, we're done, you know? You know. How many times have we, have we said, you know what, I'm go- to help me pray 
especially to help me intercede, I'm going to use a prayer list. And, and you start using that prayer list, and like two months later, you find that prayer list in the back of your Bible. And oh, yeah, that's right. How many times did you begin to want to start journaling and keeping track of the way God met with you in the word and the way God has answered your prayers and, and you open up your journal and you realize that your last entry was dated three months ago? All right. Can I get a witness? Okay. <laughs> That's what I assumed. Thanks, Nathan. Um, you wish to humble Nathan. Ask him. No, I'm just kidding. You wish to humble a Christian. I'll take it, bro. I know. I need it to. You wish to humble a man, ask him about his intimacy with God. So this weekend, my, my prayerful longing has been to, to not only preach, but also to teach, not only to sermonize, but also to, to equip you, um, to equip us, um, to get our hearts and our heads around God's longing to be with us. And in understanding how the gospel, the gospel is the liberating reality that Christ lived and died and rose from the dead. And we got biblical language to back this up because God wants us. God is not God the Father not only sent his son to rescue us from judgment. God not only sent his son to forgive our sins and to cover our shame and to remove our guilt. All of that was getting the junk out of the way so that you and I could be with God forever. That is good news. That is good news. So I, I just believe that as we get our minds and our hearts around the biblical teaching on God's passion to be with his people, that will fuel his people's desire to be with God. He wants to be with us. He loves us. As I think you said when we were singing, he doesn't just tolerate us. And just think of what the prophet Zephaniah said. The Lord your God is in your midst and he is mighty to save. And he sings over you in delight. You know how sometimes for those of you who are fathers, um, you have a child who feels like he's let you down. And he kind of gives you that look like, yeah, dad, you, you're kind of embarrassed to have me as your son right now. You know, and what do you do as a father? Oh, no. You are my delight. You're my son. That doesn't change a thing ever. This is the father's heart for us. He loves to be with us. He loves to own us as his sons. He, he is glad that we are his family and he enjoys time with the family. <laughs> and we should enjoy time with him. So I, I want to encourage us toward a more vibrant experience of intimacy with God by alluring us 
with the biblical motivations for seeking intimacy with God. And so I, uh, by, by motivation, I'm, I'm dealing obviously here with the why question. Now, why should we want to cultivate a regular rhythm of pursuing intimacy with God? And so uh, in, in the notes that were given ahead of time, where the outline was given ahead of time, I was, I was going to deal with this in four parts in two sessions. Um, part one is the priority of pursuing intimacy with God. Part two, the pleasure of pursuing intimacy with God. Part three, the profit of pursuing intimacy with God. And then finally, um, the plan for pursuing intimacy with God. I'm actually just going to deal with the priority this morning. This is the bigger section. So we're going to look at this this morning, the priority of pursuing intimacy with God. And we're going to look at the biblical material that kind of is covered under four major categories. Basically, the, more, the four major categories of how we would, how we would uh, describe God's purposes in redemptive history. And that would be creation, fall, redemption, restoration. So as we look at these four major movements in, in redemptive history um, and God's purposes in history for his people, we're going to look at it in these four categories, creation, fall, redemption, restoration. And in those categories, see the thread of how God is going out of his way to communicate his desire, his longing, his passion to be with his people and how his people respond with pursuing and engaging intimately with God himself. Okay, so you kind of know where we're going? So the priority of pursuing intimacy with God. So have you ever considered how the giving, losing, and restoring of intimacy with God are the main chapter headings of God's entire redemptive storyline. So think about it. God created human beings to enjoy intimate communion with the triune God, but they chose to exchange intimacy with God for idols, for sins. And then this cosmic rebellion resulted in a great chasm between God and humanity whereby the privilege of intimacy with God was forfeited on account of sin. However, God in his mercy didn't leave that gap. God in his mercy made a way for intimacy with God, relationship with God to be restored through the promise of a redeemer, Jesus Christ, who would repair the breach through his reconciling death on the cross. And then in the days subsequent to his life, death, and resurrection, sends his church out to tell the whole world that you can be back with God on the basis of the gospel. That sinners can once again enjoy intimacy with the triune God while waiting for the day that Christ returns, makes all things new, creating the perfect space and environment for God and man to dwell together intimately forever. That's the storyline of the scriptures. The giving Losing and restoring of intimacy with God are the main chapter headings of God's magnificent story of redemption. So, so why, why should we make cultivating a regular rhythm of pursuing intimacy with God a priority? Simply put, we're made for it. We're saved for it. And it's what we will enjoy in the new heavens and the new earth forever. Why should you long for intimacy with God? Why should you make it a priority to create space in your life to enjoy intimate fellowship with the triune God? Here really are the main 
theological reasons. You were made for that. You've been saved for that. And you will enjoy that forever. So since you're made for this, since you're saved for this, since you will experience this forever and ever, make it a priority to enjoy it now. Day by day. So let me take a few moments, um, actually a number of moments, don't want to give you an idea that this is ending in a few seconds. <laughs> let me take a few moments to show you this in the Bible. So first category, we were created for intimacy with God. I'm going to plow through a lot of scripture right now. Um, you are more than welcome to try to track along. Um, you can trust that I'm really reading the scriptures. Um, you can write down the references and go and meditate on them later. But I, I want to kind of give this the sweeping, um, the sweeping evidence for this from a number of texts. So here we are. We're in creation. Genesis 1, 26 through 28. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, God began to interact with them. God said to them, God began to relate to them. God began to talk to them. God began to experience relationship with them. Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the living every living thing that moves on the earth. Here's the main thing I want to draw out from this very significant, very full and pregnant text. Did you notice how the triune God collaborates together within the intimate communion of the Trinity, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, talking, let us make man in our image. They are communing with one another in the triune Godhead, talking and planning how they will make man in their image. So let us, says the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, make man in our image. So among the other <clears throat> spectacular things that can be said about us being made in the image of God, being made in the image of God means that human beings have the unique capacity, the unique capability of entering into the divine communion of the triune Godhead. So the Father, Son, Holy Spirit have been enjoying fellowship, intimacy with each other for all eternity. And here at this moment, they plan on making human beings in their image with the unique ability to engage in that communion, to engage in that relationship, unlike any other thing in all the created universe. This is a cosmic privilege. Being made in the image of God means, among many other things, that you can relate to God as God relates to God within the Trinity. Notice in verse 28 that the very first thing that God does with Adam and Eve is he talks to them. I couldn't hold myself back from 
saying that over and over again as I was reading it. He's talking to them, relating to them, communicating to them, drawing them into conversation. So being made in the image of God is a gift that allows us to enjoy intimacy with God. You were created in the image of God to enjoy the same privilege that the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit experiences within the triune Godhead. Isn't that amazing? You have been brought into a holy experience. You have been brought into a holy place. You've been brought into a divine relationship. God with man. Mind-blowing. So God's creative purposes for intimacy with him are then exemplified through his personal intimacy with the patriarchs and covenanters all throughout the Old Testament. Listen for the language. This idea of God communicating with man and man communicating with God and the language that's used in the Old Covenant to describe this relationship in very similar terms that we describe relating to one another as human beings. This is all intentional. This is all on purpose. And it's all a picture. See, we tend to think that we relate to God like we relate to one another, but it's really we relate to one another like God relates to God. This is, this is it. our ability to, to think and to talk and to communicate and to feel and to engage and to love and to show charity and to support and to help and to be there with and for one another. All of these things are echoes of the divine image in us. And so one of the greatest privileges of being made in the image of God is the capacity for relationship, not just with other human beings, but ultimately for us as human beings to enter into relationship with the divine. So again, we, we know Adam had Adam and Eve had this as they walked with God in the cool of the day. Noah had this. Genesis 6 verse 9. Short and sweet. Noah walked with God. Noah walked with God. As we were getting ready to come here for our first evening session together, Julian and I walked from the cabin to this place. Um, and we were walking side by side as friends, talking, engaging, relating. We were walking together. This is... This is language that describes relational engagement. Noah walked with God. As you walk with your friends, as you walk with your spouse, as you, as you walk from point A to point B and engage in conversation and talk about life in general and all of its nuances, recent experiences, past experiences, that experience of walking is a description of engaging in intimate conversation and relationship with the one that you're with. That's what Noah was doing with God. Abraham did this. Abraham experienced intimacy with God. I mean, the whole story of Abraham, Genesis 12 <clears throat> and following you find these types of statements like Genesis 12, 1, the Lord said to Abraham, God speaks directly to Abraham, which then solicits Abraham's response to 
communicate back to God. So there is this reflexive. It's not just a one way. God doesn't speak. It's not like this loud, booming voice from heaven that drives Abraham to the ground and he can't respond. He can't talk back. He just listens. It's not like this, you listen when I talk to you. It's not that type of situation. It is an interactive engagement. Abraham and God. Isaac experiences this intimacy with God. Genesis 25, 21. And Isaac prayed to the Lord for his wife because she was barren. And the Lord granted his prayer. Here's where we actually begin to get language that describes the kind of communication that we have with God. Prayer. It's a special word that describes a special kind of conversation between the human and the divine. And this is getting a little ahead of myself, but here we have in this this particular text with Isaac's communication with God that one of the things we talk to God about is the hard, broken things that we deal with in this fallen, sin-cursed earth. My wife is bearing God. We have some promises that we've been given. That from my father's seed, the nations are going to be blessed. And that that doesn't seem to be working, God. Something's broken. Something's not right. And I'm talking to you about it, first of all, because who else can I go to? And second of all, because you can do something about it. Right? And so we see this amazing humble, dependent interaction between the creator and his creatures in this intimate relationship. Jacob experiences intimacy with God. Oh, Jacob. Genesis 28, 15. Behold, I am with you. This is what the Lord says to Jacob. Behold, I am with you and will keep you wherever you go. And you will, and you will be back in this land, and for I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised you. This is kind of in the midst of Jacob blowing it left and right like he typically does. And we have this beautiful picture, especially in this relationship between Jacob and the triune God, that this relationship, and this is the place where it's seen most prominently, that this relationship is based on grace, not performance. We see in Abraham that God initiates the relationship. We see in the relationship that God has with Isaac that God relates to his people who are in desperate need of him. And then in Jacob, we see that God continues to relate to his people even though they keep turning on him. So here's, J- here's God saying, I've made a promise. I'm going to be with you. I'm not going to leave you. You, 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 are, you are constantly fumbling in your relationship with me, but I will never fumble my relationship with you. So the intimacy continues despite failures and struggles and lack of character. And that's good news for us, amen? Joseph experiences intimacy with God. Genesis 39, verse 2. I love, I love the story of Joseph. Oh, go read the story of Joseph again in Genesis. Um, and I would encourage you to track how many times the story tells us, and the Lord was with Joseph. The Lord was with Joseph. Well, God's omnipresent. He's always everywhere. He's, of course he was with Joseph. No, no, no. This language is, is, is used intentionally to describe that there was a palpable, tangible, felt sense of God's presence with his son, Joseph. 
Genesis 39.2, the Lord was with Joseph and he became a successful man. And he was in the house of his Egyptian master. And his master saw that the Lord was with him. And that the Lord caused all that he did to succeed in his hands. We're going to get to this later when we talk about the, when we talk about the prophet of intimacy with God. But here, this, it's worth noting here. People can tell when we're with God. People can tell when we've spent time with God. People can tell when we've been in the presence of God. And so part of some, an unbelieving Egyptian, Potiphar says, Joseph is amazing. He does an amazing job. And here's the reason why. Because God is with him. Moses experiences intimacy with God. Fast forwarding now to Exodus chapter 3, verse 4. God called to him out of the bush, Moses, Moses. And he said, here I am. Again, here's interaction. God speaks to Moses. Moses speaks to God. This is just the ordinary experience for God's covenant people. And then here, I love this description. Actually, Julian, you and I were talking about this the other day. Exodus 33:11. The Lord used to speak to Moses face to face as a man speaks to his friend. So how, how would you describe Moses' relationship with God? Friendship. Friendship. And you go in Exodus 33 and you, and you see this beautiful uh, retelling of, of Moses. He would wake up every morning, go to the tent of meeting. Joshua would stand outside. He was kind of like his bodyguard because there's always jackals everywhere. Um, no, just kidding. Um, Joshua is standing outside the tent. Moses is in there face to face. God talking to him, him talking to God face to face as a man. What? Right? Amazing. Fast forward to David. David is constantly talking about his experiences of intimacy with God. Uh, The Psalter is song after song after song after song of David saying, I've sought him. I've seen him. I'm satisfied in him. I celebrate him. And you can too. Those are the Psalms, right? Aren't they? I'm being a little over reductionistic, right? But it's, those are the Psalms. 1 Samuel 13, 14 tells us why this was the case. David, the Lord sought after, uh, the Lord sought out a man after his own heart. David desired to be in the presence of God. David desired to experience intimacy with God. Where did David get the notion that that was an option? He got it from Moses. He got it from Joseph. He got it from Jacob. He got it from Isaac. He got it from Abraham. He got it from Noah. He got it from Adam. This has been God's plan all along. Patriarch by patriarch, covenant by covenant, it's clear that we were made for intimate communion with God. Can you see it? God's heart for his people this is probably one of my, I think it's really ironic. I just talked about how Leviticus trips us up in our like consecutive Bible reading. But probably one of my favorite texts in all the Bible is in Leviticus. Leviticus 26 verse 12. And I will walk among you and will be your God and you shall be my people. I'm going to be with you. I'm going to be yours and you're going to be mine 
forever. That's good news. That's good news. So why should you long to pursue intimacy with God regularly? You were made for this. You've been saved for this. You were made to walk with him, talk with him, and hear from him. You believe that. And, and part of what we need is for the, for the theology of that proposition to translate into practical, functional experience. Talking with some brothers last night, and they were just saying, yeah, man, that's just life. So oftentimes in my Christian life is I get so connected and amazed by the propositions, I forget that the propositions are really connecting me to a person. You know what good theology does? Good theology should make you long to be with the theos. <laughs> words, theology, words about God, true words about God, should make you long to be with the God those words are describing. You can be full of theology and dry in communion. We don't want that. Why do we even get to that place? Why do we find ourselves even not pursuing him? Well, here's the next section. Time out. What time does this session end? I can cut off any time. I, I, for, I forgot to look at the clock when I came up. If this is being recorded, I'm sorry. Okay, I'm. I'm Just keep going. We're good. Okay. Lunchtime is the. Oh, goodness. <laughs> so, why do we even wrestle with even wanting this in the first place? We're like, oh, we're made for this. We're saved for this. This is what we're going to have forever. Why in the world would we even forfeit it? Why in the world would we even turn from it? Well, let me just summarize this in Philadelphia lingo. We're idiots. Oh, it's another I word. We're idolaters. We exchange intimacy with the triune God for idolatry. And this is the second category, the fall. That's how Adam and Eve lost it. it when I went into the breakfast line this morning, what, what, what was the first thing available to us? Fruit. Or, am I the only guy that like, had to say, okay, fine, I'll take some fruit. <laughs> right? So, I'm, like, I'm, I'm tempted to like, pass by the fruit and just get to the tots and the sausage. And I was surprised by the pecan danish. That was amazing. Goodness. I like food. That's why I work out, so I can eat. Okay. Um, and I'm thinking, man, I, I typically would rather pass up on fruit or the better stuff. And here in Genesis chapter 3, they give up God for a piece of fruit. Really? Really? We're idiots. We're idolaters. It begins with Adam and Eve. They turned from, from the enjoyment of intimacy with God by turning after sin. It, you know, it, doesn't, it wouldn't have mattered if it was fruit or illicit sex or un- ethical pursuit of money, uh, whatever, that, that fruit is whatever, it, it, it could have been anything. The human heart is a lord to replacing God with God's gifts. 
The human heart is curious, curiously preoccupied with wanting things that God said we shouldn't want. And so in Genesis 3, verse 6, so when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate. They gave up intimacy with God for a piece of forbidden fruit. So in the shame of their sin, what do Adam and Eve do? Do they eat more fruit? We don't know. But we do, we do know what they did immediately after. They hid in their shame from God. Rather than running to him, they run away from him because they're filled with shame. Genesis 3, 8, And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord among the trees of the garden. And this, my brothers, is the repeated story of God's people, exchanging the pursuit of God for the pursuit of idols, rather than running to God, hiding from God. And very often in our lives, the reason why we don't find ourselves engaging in a regular rhythm of pursuing intimacy with God is because either A, we are pursuing idols in the place of God, or B, we are dealing with the shame of having done that before. Rather than going after him, we're going after other things. Rather than going after him, we're seeking satisfaction in all the wrong places. Or we're dealing with the shame. God doesn't want me to be near him right now because I did fill in the blank. Because I looked at fill in the blank. Because I pursued fill in the blank. And this is the story line of the Bible. Now, let me give you two texts that kind of summarize this tendency of humanity. In the Old Testament, Jeremiah 2, 11 13. Has a nation changed its gods, even though they are no gods? But my people have changed their glory for that which does not profit. Be appalled, O heavens, at this. Be shocked. Be utterly desolate, declares the Lord. For my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and hewed out cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that can hold no water. God offers himself to his people as a sustaining, satisfying fountain. He says, here I am. Drink. It will sustain you. You need me. It will satisfy you. You want me. And I will fill you with satisfaction and sustenance. Keep coming to me. I'll keep giving it to you. He says, but my people said no. Forget the fountain. I'm drinking over here in the toilet. It's a cistern. Dirty water. Bracken water. Toxic water. Filthy water. He said, when we, when we fail to pursue intimacy with God, we do so because we are pursuing sustenance and satisfaction in the wrong places. And God says, that's evil. That's evil. Let me just kind of a little parenthetical here. Um, 
repentance is a very, very important function in the life of the Christian. Amen? Right? Um, and I think this text informs us that repentance is, is not, is not, it's twofold. Repentance is not just turning from sin. Repentance is returning back to God as the sustainer and satisfier of the soul. Repentance for God's people in, in Jeremiah's day was not just stop drinking from the cistern. It's dirty. It's idolatrous. It's, it's spiritually toxic. It's blasphemy. Repentance for Israel was not simply get your head out of the toilet. Repentance for Israel was get your head out of the toilet and come back to the fountain. And very often, I believe the reason why repentance, our attempts at repentance are short-lived is because all we do is try to turn from the toilet without coming back to the fountain. We try to turn from sin and its satisfying pleasures without coming to Christ, back to Christ, the satisfier of the soul. And so I just think that someone needed to hear that, even though I wasn't planning on sharing that. That's repentance. Maybe it's when you feel stuck. Yeah, I'm, I'm looking for sustenance and satisfaction in all the wrong places. That's me. Here I am. But I, I, I've tried to turn from pornography. I've, I've tried to turn from lust. I've, I've tried to turn from covetousness and materialism. I've, I've, I've tried to turn from those things. I've, I've prayed so hard. God, help me not want those things. Would you turn around and look at what you're missing out on? In his presence is fullness of joy. At his right hand are pleasures forever. All attempts at repentance are short-lived if they're only attempts to turn from sin and not back to God as the satisfying and sustaining life-giving fountain of your soul. That's the Old Testament. And then the New Testament, Romans 1, 23. Claiming to be wise, they, that's humanity, became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Here is humanity's, here is our natural tendency. Our natural tendency is to turn God's gifts into God. Our, our reflex ought to be, <laughs> if the gifts are so good, then the one who's given us the gifts must be so much better. If, if food and sport and sex with a marriage and all of these enjoyable things that we experience, if, if they are that good and every good gift and every perfect gift comes to us from the Father, then the Father must be that much better. My kids are getting older now, so this doesn't happen as much as it used to happen when they were younger and didn't know what they were supposed to do when I came home. I would always bring home a gift for them. You know, I travel, I preach, I hang out with brothers and sisters in other churches, other places, seek to make a deposit, make much of Jesus. And I, I'd like to bring something back to them from the place I was just so they could feel like they're a part of it. They're praying for me while I'm gone. I want them to just enjoy a little, a little bit of where I was when I was gone. So I 
kids are young, I'd get home, I'd pull up to the house, I'd open the door, and here's what I wanted to hear. Dad, you're home. That's not what I heard. Where's the presents? What did you get me? I wanted to say, you got me back. I'm home, right? No, don't feel bad for me. <laughs> now they know the routine. Dad, great to see you. So what'd you get me? <laughs> you know? Our tendency, our temptation is to be deceived into thinking that the gifts are better than the giver. And we laugh about how that really plays out in like little small microcosmic illustrations. But this is blasphemy when we do it with God. So the warning for turning from God to idols all throughout the scriptures, especially in Isaiah and Jeremiah, is that we become like what we worship. We become like our idols, dead. Wasn't this the warning? The day you eat the fruit, you shall surely die. Prophet Ezekiel said, the soul that sins, it shall die. The Apostle Paul said, the wages of sin is death. Death of what? There's still physical life. Adam and Eve didn't drop dead physically. There was a death of a relationship. A death of intimacy. A death of privilege. And that, and that death would continue forever if God weren't full of mercy. And so that leads to the third major section that I'll just... I think appropriately, not irresponsibly, fly through. This intimacy that's lost because of idolatry and sin can be regained by the reconciling death of the Savior. And we see a a foretaste of this in the garden. There's so much in the garden. Hang out in the garden. It's a great place. So in Genesis 3, so you you have this epic cosmic failure then you have this epic universal promise that one day, God in his mercy, will send a redeemer to crush the head of the serpent and to restore intimacy with God. How do we know intimacy God is at the heart of this? Well, so here's Adam and Eve. They're hiding in their shame. And what does God do? God pursues them, brings them back to him, And then he makes a way for them in their shame to remain in his presence. Sacrifices an animal. Covers them with skins. And gives us a little clue for how this whole relationship is going to be repaired. That judgment is necessary, but the death of another will be sufficient to cover the shame of your sin that you can be with me. And this is where the stage begins to be set for the sacrificial system. This is where the stage gets set for the greatest sacrifice of all. The reconciling death of Jesus. A life for a life. That we can be reconnected and reconciled to life. Right. So God provides for this. Jesus comes and reveals his, God's heart for intimacy to be regained. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we beheld his glory. The glory is the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. Powerful word dwelt 
Um, in the original language, it's the Greek word skenao. I think I can't believe I got this far without dropping Hebrew or Greek. I guess we're just hanging out as guys, right? A skenao. It literally means to pitch a tent. And the word became flesh and pitched his tent among us. Intentional language by John to direct our attention that the arrival of Jesus is an indication that God has not turned away from his desire to be among his people, to be with his people. It's a word that directs our attention back to the tabernacle. What was the tabernacle? The tabernacle was in transit what the temple was in stationary. And so what was happening? For 40 years, God's people were wandering through the wilderness. And each night they would set up their encampment. Three tribes to the north, three tribes to the south, three tribes to the east, three tribes to the west. And someone's tent was in the middle. Whose? God's. Everybody stay in the tent. God had his tent. What was he saying through the the presence of the tabernacle, his tent among his people? You're wandering because you didn't trust me, but I'm not leaving you. I'm still with you. I'm still dwelling with you. You will be my people. I will be your God. I will dwell with you. Not turning back on that one. Here's Jesus and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. You've sinned. You failed. You haven't trusted me. You've exchanged the living God for idols. But I'm here to tell you, God has not changed his plan. I will be your God. You will be my people. I will dwell with you. Can you see it? And so what, for three and a half years, Jesus dwells. He's he's showing that, that access and opportunity to be with God is available to all who will turn from their sin and trust him. So he, he, he assembles a gathering. People start dwelling with him, right? And then all of this ends with him, him demonstrating the, the ultimate way, the ultimate means the, the, of, of this reconciliation, of this intimacy with God being reconciled. First Peter 3.18, for Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. So Jesus brings sinners back to the place where they can once again enjoy intimacy with God, the intimacy they were made to enjoy, and now the intimacy that they are redeemed to enjoy. 1 Corinthians 1.19, God is faithful by whom we were called into the fellowship of his son, Jesus Christ our Lord. Fellowship. Life shared with God. We talk about fellowship, koinonia, primarily in terms of our relationship with one another. What's koinonia for us? It's doing life together. It's being together. It's praying together. It's eating together. It's worshiping together. It's caring for one another. It's, it's all the one another stuff of the New Testament. That's fellowship. That's koinonia. It's, it's life together with one another. Paul says it's not just life together with one another. It's life together with Christ. Intimacy with Christ. Face to face with Christ. Friendship with Christ. Oh, Jesus, when he said in John 15, you are my friends. That's you. Through the reconciling death of Jesus, you are a friend of God. I mean, Jesus even claims that the, the, the essence of, of receiving the gift of eternal life 
is the enjoyment of getting to know God in intimate communion. John 17, verse 3, and this is eternal life. They may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. And how, how did the Apostle Paul describe his deepest human longing this side of heaven that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his suffering being made conformable to his death. Because of Jesus, we have never-ending access intimacy with God. One of the practical implications of the text that Julian shared with us in the call to worship last night is amazing. It's staggering, actually. When James says, draw near to God, and he will draw near to you, because of the purification of sins that's made available to us through the cross death of Jesus Christ, ready? I believe this to be true. We can be as close to God as we want to be. Draw near to him. He will draw near to you. God promises that every time we take a step towards him, he will take a step towards us. Amazing, isn't it? Also convicting. That means that we are as close to God as we want. What are we waiting for? Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may find mercy and grace to help in time of need. We think of that mercy and grace as kind of like these, these, these nebulous, intangible things that get kind of thrown at us when we come to God. What's mercy and grace? It's Jesus. Jesus is the mercy and grace. We draw near to him and his throne and we, and we bow our lives before his supremacy over all things. And what, what's that proximity to Jesus mean for us? It means mercy. It means grace. It means having everything we need in his presence. That's awesome. I need to improve my vocabulary. There's probably better words than awesome. Through the gospel that was given at creation and lost at the fall. It has been restored now and forever. Through the gospel, what was given at creation and lost at the fall has been restored now and forever. What a privilege. We who deserve God's wrath have been shown God's mercy. We who deserve to be cast far away from the presence of God have been given never-ending access to the throne room of God. We can know him and be known by him all because of Jesus, the reconciler of God and man. How thrilling. And we aren't the only ones who are thrilled to be reconciled to God. God is thrilled to have us back. I'll go read the parable of the prodigal son. When the, when the rebellious son returns, what does the father do? He throws a party. And he says, let us eat and celebrate. For this my son was dead and was alive again. He was lost and is found. 
and they began to celebrate. God celebrates our return. That is humbling. So let us return. If you've already returned in the most ultimate theological sense, you were born again. Um, Let us also return in the practical, functional sense. If we have been straying away from this intimacy with God, let us go after it. Let us pursue it. Let us return. And here's what you will not find from the Father. About time you've come back. About time you've opened that Bible again. About time you've talked to me. About time you've actually sung. About time you've written down some reflections about me in your journal. Now he's going to say, oh, it's so good to hear from you again. This is where you belong. God celebrates our reconciliation and God celebrates our repeated returns when we come back from to him after seasons of straying from him. He loves to be with you, my brothers. He loves to be with us. So much so that this is the way it will be forever. And with this, I close this session. We will enjoy intimacy with the triune God forever. Revelation 21, 1 through 4. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city. New Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. Tell me if this sounds like Leviticus. He will dwell with them, and he will be, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them, with them as their God and he will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away didn't Jesus say and if I go and prepare a place for you I will come again and where I am you will be all the giving losing and restoring of intimacy with the triune God are the main chapter headings of God's magnificent story of redemption. Why should we want to pursue intimacy with God? My brothers, you're made for this. You're saved for this. Jesus bled and died to give this to you as a gift. And it will be what we enjoy with God and one another forever and ever. Amen. 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 Pray. Oh God, you are our God. And because of what we've just considered, let us be more motivated to seek you. In Jesus' name, amen.